Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn again to the book of Job. Job is the book right before the Psalms. And uh, we're going to be in Job chapter 2. There are things that happen in our lives and in our mind and our thinking when we begin to look deeply at a book like Job. Sometimes looking at the suffering of another, looking at the challenges of another, sometimes it reminds us. It reminds us of difficulties we may have faced. It reminds us of struggles that we may have gone through. And sometimes we all of a sudden become in touch with feelings that, that we thought we had once gotten over. Several years ago, I read a book by an individual about being a pastor's kid. You know, I'm a pastor's kid. And uh, at one point in time, I, I put the book down somewhat dramatically, and I looked at my wife and I said, I thought I had dealt with this stuff already. And it was bringing up feelings and angsts and frustrations that I thought I had already dealt with. And sometimes Job might do that for you. And, and if so, let that be something that maybe God says, I want you to kind of process that again. Suffering, loss, and grief linger for a time and know that time doesn't fully heal. Sometimes we need the space to process. For some of us, we've become more sensitive to the struggles of those around us and have a new reality that everybody goes through difficult times. Struggles in life don't just happen to the little people. And I was reminded of that fact when someone passed an article on to me this week. Uh, an article about the star in the Matrix franchise. Uh, there's the movies that came out. The, most, the recent one is The Matrix Revolution. And Keanu Reeves is the star of those four movies that have been out. And yet his life was, has not been a life that was you would call glamorous. By the time he was 12 years old, Reeves had moved from the country of Lebanon to the country of Australia. And in Australia, his family moved quite a few times and then moved to Canada and then moved to New York. Now, during all of that time, his mother was married and divorced twice. And by the time they got to New York, she was on her third husband. By the time Reeves was 16 years old, his mother was on her fourth husband. Keanu Reeves attended five high schools in four years. And it was after getting expelled from one of those high schools, he decided to try acting. His career took off in the 1980s with a movie called Bill and Ted's Big Adventure. Adventure. Party on, dudes! Yes, I've watched that movie. Uh, and, and yet in the midst of that success that came out of that movie, he struggled with tragedy. In 1993, his best friend died of an overdose. A year later, he fell in love with actress Jennifer Syme. They were together for over five years, and, and uh, at the end, you know, five years later, on Christmas Eve, 
1999, their first child was stillborn. The relationship did not survive the tragedy, and yet they remained in touch. They remained friends. And in 2001, they had a brunch together. The next day, Jennifer Syme was killed in a car accident. Now, with all of that going on, Keanu Reeves was taking care of his sister who had been going through cancer treatments diagnosed with leukemia. That's a lot for one person. But when you think about that and you you kind of digest all of that, and by the way, the article said his sister has since gone into remission, that's a lot to process. And yet, you know, all of us can come up with someone, I believe, who, even if it's ourselves, has been through a lot of unfortunate stuff. And to a person, you can also think of the people who were there for you. The people who walked with you through the struggles. The people who prayed for you. The people who in small ways ministered in those small, simple, practical ways. It's these people that I like to call our spiritual first responders that God uses to help us hang on to our faith when everything else seems lost. When we last saw Job, he had lost everything. Everything that had given him any sort of human success, any sort of human recognition was gone. He had lost his income and his agribusiness that produces that income. All of his herds, all of his flocks, all of his servants, gone. He had lost his children, all ten children, gone in a moment's notice. He had lost his status had lost his legacy. And yet in the midst of losing everything, he clung to the one thing, his faith in a great God who had the right to do what he wants. Now oftentimes there are those that will claim, kind of flippantly sometimes, everything happens for a reason. And for those who might claim that, I would tell you this, Job has absolutely no idea why he's going through all of this. He knows not the reason. And even, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, when everything is restored to him, even more so than what he lost, nowhere in the book are we told that Job knows why. He has no idea why this happened to him. Job had no reasons to give for what was going on. He had no cutesy little plaques on his wall to tell him that, you know, everything happens for a reason or the grace of God is too strong to take us to the will of God or to keep us where the will of God takes us, whatever that is. You know, he had no calendars with the verse of the day. He had nothing and no idea that he wasn't done yet. Let me read Job chapter 2 for us. 
Actually, I'm going to get a running start and read 122 and then go. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite, heard all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. We do not know how much time passes between chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Job. I tend to think that it was not much time at all. And I get that clue from verse 8 of the chapter we read, which describes Job sitting in the ashes. Literally, what happened in the time is when you were in deep grief, you would go out to the outside of the town, and they called it the ash heap. It was kind of the town dump. And you would sit there with your robes torn and you would have ashes on your head to express your grief. And Job is there. And so while he's still sitting there in his grief, the adversary comes back and has another discussion with God. And God reminds the adversary, that's the word that's translated Satan, it's literally the adversary. God reminds him that he failed with Job. What we're going to do today is I'm going to walk you through the passage, then I'm going to leave you with four things to take away at the end of the sermon today. So note how God describes Job again in verse 3, the exact same way he described him in chapter 1. I mean, if you're looking for goals for 2022, here you go. 
Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job is that person. And, and God goes on and he says, and he maintained his integrity even though you incited me against him to ruin him, by the way, without any reason. That word maintained is, is a word that means to grab a hold of. It means to cling to. Well, one scholar translated it, he held tenaciously to his integrity. He held tenaciously to the character that God had wrought in him. His character of that blamelessness, that uprightness, that moral, ethical character, that, that character that said, I fear God. God is the most important being in my life. I fear him and I'm going to fear I fear him so much I'm in such awe of God that I'm going to always turn from evil. He held tenaciously to that. His integrity, his wholeness, his completeness did not waver in his commitment to God regardless of his circumstances. God is pleased with the integrity of Job. I would tell you God is not surprised, but he's pleased. Because God knew Job better than Job knew himself. The adversary is cynical at best. He maintains, and it's a belief that flows through the book, he maintains that false belief that Job only clings to God because in some way, shape, or form there is personal benefit to Job. And in fact, his view of Job is so low, the adversary's view of Job is so low that he asserts Job would save his own skin before he would save another. That's the assertion behind that term, skin for skin. From a lighthearted approach, it's this idea. I never have to be faster than an angry bear in the woods. I only have to be faster than one other person. Which is why I never go to the woods with a top-notch athlete. But it's that idea. I save myself. In a harsher way, the adversary is saying that Job would rather have sacrificed his children and his servants before himself. He says, God, you put his life at risk. He's done with you. And God allows it. It's as if, it's, it's if God says to the adversary, do your worst. Because God knows Job. And yet, and I'm going to repeat this several times because I think it's, the most, it's one of the most important things for me that grows out of these first two chapters of Job. Don't ever forget that the boundary God puts on the adversary cannot be crossed. So he says, do your worst, but spare his life. Now what the adversary does is, in the text, is he strikes Job with painful sores. Some translations call it boils. The word that's translated painful is the, word, the root word from which we get our word evil. I mean, this is as bad as it gets that kind of gives you an idea how bad this this thing is that job is this physical ailment and yet 
In Job chapter 30, in his last oration, he describes his ailment even more. So we we have here sores, some kinds of festering sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. But then in chapter 30, verse 17, Job speaks of a gnawing pain that doesn't rest at night. So this pain is chronic and it's continual. In verse 27 of chapter 30, he talks about a churning inside him that never stops. So here's a a pain that keeps going. There's this churning, some kind of a, maybe a stomach churning or something. But then he makes it even worse. In verse 30, he speaks that his skin turning black and peeling while his body burns with fever. So just imagine this. And this is Part of why his friends don't recognize him. He is in just the worst physical condition imaginable. And in fact, when we get to verse 8, there's that kind of counterintuitive. The pain is so great. And some medical professionals say that nerve pain sometimes feels like it's itching. So the pain is so great as he's sitting out there on the ash heap All these sores and everything, he grabs just a a piece of broken pottery and he's just scraping where it's itching. I mean, this is, if you had breakfast this morning, I'm sorry, because this just makes your stomach turn. It's about as low as a person can get physically. Compound that with the grief. All his livestock, all his servants, all his children. It's just bad. Job's first responder is his wife. Now, I admit, I used to be pretty hard on Job's wife. The writer has her use the same words as the adversary, and so I have at times called her an unwitting tool of the enemy, But I don't do that anymore. I don't agree with her, but I have great empathy for her. Here's why. One of the hardest things in the world is to watch someone you love go through any sort of excruciating pain. I have had the privilege of being with my wife as she delivered each of our three children. And I know that my depth of admiration and love for her grew as she went through that painful time. She, just amazing. One of our friends was actually actually one of our uh, OB nurses for, I think, for David. And, uh, And she came to me afterwards and she said, your wife is a lady in every sense of the word. And she just, it was just amazing. Now, Charlene has been with me as I have delivered several kidney stones. Now, I can't speak to the depth of her admiration as I went through that excruciating pain, but I can, I can speak to the grave concern on her face and the sense of helplessness as she wanted to do something to ease the pain and couldn't. You'll have to ask her about the admiration thing. It's hard when we can't help someone 
suffering. It's hard when we can't relieve the suffering. We feel helpless. And we don't like to feel helpless. That's not part of our human condition. Because when we feel helpless, we feel out of control. And sometimes it's in our fear and our frustration and our helplessness that we say stuff that comes out pretty bad. Job's wife is angry. And she's angry at God. And never forget, everything that Job lost, she lost. She lost. All of her children in one fell swoop. She lost all of the comforts and all of everything that came with Job being a man that was blessed. It's all gone. And in that odd sense, she's kind of angry with Job, I bet. Why? Because as a normal person living in the time, she too held to the belief that only bad things happen to bad people. Bad things don't happen to good people. And who else besides her, other than God, knows how good and just and kind and compassionate and God-fearing Job is. His wife does. She knows what kind of a man her husband is, and she sees him there suffering in agony and grieving, and she says, Job, I can't stand this anymore. I can't stand to see you this way anymore. Just go ahead. Just curse God and, and, and die. I, I just can't take it anymore. Job, let go. Job, be done with it. Job, quit holding on to something we no longer have. Sometimes, when someone suffers in a deep way, it doesn't draw them together with the spouse, but sometimes it may drive a wedge between them. And there's a potential wedge being driven between Job and his wife here. And I don't see Job's response as an angry response. In fact, when I look at Job's response, remember that response is coming from abject pain. So, you know, I might have a kind of a booming voice right now. I don't think Job did. You know, Job replies to her, probably drawing breaths each time. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I can almost see his wife collapsing beside him in tears, not knowing what's next and just in emotional pain herself. And the writer tells us in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. By the way, second spoiler alert, God never condemns Job's wife in the book. She's in pain. She's hurting. She doesn't know what she's saying. Whether she's an unwitting tool of the enemy or not, I'll figure out when I get to heaven. She's just a hurting lady. Job doesn't curse God. Job clings to his faith that God is still there, that God is still good, and even when every shred of his, of his life screams otherwise, Job clings to God, 
holds tenaciously to him. Now, a person like Job, who's known throughout the East, chapter 1 tells us, word gets out. Word spreads. And he has three good friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they hear about his troubles. And they do what good friends should do. They get together and they say, we got to go to Job. we got to be there. And in fact, they say, by agreement, we're going to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Their intentions are good and right and godly. They want to go be with their friend and try to help him in his distress. The word that's translated sympathize is a term that means to move back and forth. It's an expression of sorrow. It's an expression of grief. It's directed toward a person or an event. We've done what this word expresses at times. We hear of someone going through a difficult time or, or we hear of a, some tragedy. Maybe it was when you watched the wildfires in Colorado take out a thousand homes and, and you saw those pictures and you went, oh my, oh my, that is horrible. Or you hear of a friend cancer and you go, no, 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 that can't, not them. And you shake your head and you say, no, that's that's." What's happening? We're going to go and we're going to, we're going to say, oh, Job, we're sorry. Job, what can we do? But they also want to comfort him. They want to bring some relief to his distress. They, they want to empathize with him. And these are good, right intentions. And note what the Bible says. When they saw him, they didn't even recognize him. I've been in hospital rooms where someone has been in an accident and the, the swelling and all, and, and you don't recognize them. And you go back weeks later and, oh, they start to look like the person you knew. And, and they, they see him, they don't recognize. Remember, if his skin is starting to turn colors, boils everywhere or sores, whatever they are, and he's just a broken man. And they do what any good kind, compassionate, ancient, Near Eastern man would do at the time. They begin to weep out loud. They grab a hold of their outer garments, their robes, and they tear them apart. And they reach down and they grab ashes and they throw those ashes in the air. They sprinkle on their heads and they sit down with Job, identifying with his pain and his grief as much as they can. And the Bible says they sit there for seven days and nights and no one says a word. And I want to submit to you that more effective and impactful ministry took place in those seven days than in anything that takes place in all the speeches to follow up until God speaks. If the book of Job ended here at the end of chapter 2, we would have a great example of a powerful way to minister to others. But it doesn't, and we'll see more. So we have this description. What can we learn from it? What can we discover from all of this? What's the point? And this is not my first trip through the book of Job. And yet when I got to this point most recently, I just stopped and I just began to think, what, what can I take away from all of this? What can I help you take away from all of this? And so I want to give you four takeaways today. Takeaway number one, and I know we've reiterated this before, but let me say it yet again. The adversary is always, always subject 
to God's boundaries. Now, there's another way to look at this, and it's from God's perspective. We stressed that last week. I've mentioned it a couple times here this morning. God knows what you and I are capable of, and we are constantly under his watchful eye. On the other side of the coin, the adversary is relentless in his attempts to cause those who trust God to stumble. The adversary may not know our heart, but he knows human nature. And always remember this, the book of Job is not a book about the adversary. He's a minor player in the book. You're not going to hear about him again in the, next, the, the rest of the book. We're not going to bring him up again. Because the book of Job is a book about a man, a human being like you and me. A human being who goes through difficult times and in the midst of those clings tenaciously to what he knows about God. Takeaway number two. The quantity of faith in God is not as important as the fact of faith in God. I don't think Job's a man of great faith. He's a man of faith. God clings to his faith into God, Job clings to his faith in God, and he clings to that by a thread. We're going to see in a future sermon how as the suffering goes on and the relentless talking of his friends goes on and, and the feeling that he needs to defend himself goes on, Job kind of shifts from faith to a sense of demanding that, yeah, I have something to say to you, God. And, and he slips a little bit in that way. You know, Jesus never talks about the amount of faith we have or we have too little faith. You either have faith or you don't. We see that in Matthew 17. Jesus once said that to his disciples, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains, Matthew 17, 20. But notice that preceding that was a man who brought his son to the disciples who had a demon and they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus' rebuke of them was that you have such little faith. The point being, some of us don't even have mustard seed faith. Because in Job, we see it's not enough faith. No, well, that didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith. No. God doesn't weigh it that way. God just wants us to have faith. God doesn't quantify it. All he does to say mustard seed, say it's just got to be a little bit. But it's about having faith. The quantity of faith in God is not as important as the fact of faith in God. Job shows us that it's not whether you have enough faith, just have faith. Takeaway number three. God seems to get our anger and frustration at circumstances. As I've already mentioned, nowhere in the book of Job is his wife condemned by God. Job rebukes her. And we can only conclude that at the end of the book, when everything is restored to Job, including 10 more kids, she got the privilege of delivering those 10 kids. She had stuff restored to her as well, because we're not told otherwise. But her anger is real, and it flows from not fully understanding God, and it flows from a spouse who's in agony watching the love of her life suffer. 
And in Psalm 103, 14, we read that God remembers that we are dust. I take a lot of comfort in that verse. God knows I'm dust. God knows I fail. God knows I mess up. God knows I get angry when I shouldn't. God knows I don't understand my circumstances. God knows that. He knows that we're weak and we're finite and we don't understand and he's patient with us. God gets our anger and our frustration in circumstances. I've referenced it, I think, last week, but Psalm 73. Go read that sometime. You know, Asaph writes that psalm and he says, I looked around at the world and it seems like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the wealthy just seem to have no problems at all and the rest of us struggle and limp along and you just seem to not pay any attention, God. And, and, and you know, we, we get there. God gets our anger and frustration at circumstances. He wants us to cling to him, but he gets that we get frustrated. Takeaway number four, the ministry of presence is powerful and effective. A long time ago, I was asked to research, write, and teach a college-slash-seminary class entitled Counseling Adolescence. It was a three-hour class, a two-hour class, I'm sorry, but they took the entire class and crammed it into one week. Every day was a lecture from 8 in the morning till 3 or 4 in the afternoon. There was a midterm Wednesday afternoon, and then there was a final on Friday. Uh, side note, I remember the, the Sunday night before that class started, I had this very vivid dream. And I walk I, in this, I mean, it was in living color. And I walked into my supervisor's office, a, a guy that I'd been a classmate with, his name was Ken, and I walked in, and I could hear his voice. Hey, Scott, what's up? And I, I could see myself sitting down in his desk, and I looked at him, and I said, Ken, I'm in trouble. Oh, what's going on? I said, it's Wednesday. Yeah. Ken, I'm done. I don't have any words left. I don't have any notes left. What are we going to do for the next three days? I don't know. And then the alarm went off, and I woke up. <laughs> I mean, that's how nervous I was. One morning, one of my students walked into class. It was obvious he was visibly shaken and troubled. When I asked him what was going on, and we were all kind of sitting there, he shared that he had spent almost the entire night with two of his youth group kids in a hospital waiting room. Their mother, sometime during the night, passed away. At one point, he looked at me, he goes, Prof, I did not know what to say. I said, so what did you say? Nothing. I just sat there with them and I cried. So we spent the next hour talking about the power of the ministry of presence. That his presence with those two kids, his empathizing with them, his weeping with them was the most powerful thing he could do. The ministry of presence is powerful and, expect, and, and effective. Job's three friends show empathy. They show grief. They sit with him for seven days. 
They say nothing. Sometimes God gives us words. Sometimes he just wants us to be there. To be a presence. To hold a hand. To shed a tear. To give a hug. To fix a cup of tea or coffee. To do some dishes. I think that's one of the realities that makes our current circumstances so hard. Because we want to be there, and because of COVID, we often can't be there, and that is difficult. We want to be physically present with another. And it's in those times when we are only physically present or when we can't be physically present that we need to trust God's presence. We need to trust His ability to encourage others through the things that we may not be able to do at the moment. The ministry of presence is so powerful and effective. Don't think you always have to have the right words or the right things to say. Being there is enough. I read recently that writer Anne Lamont said, sometimes you just show up, nod, and cry. And that might be enough. Job's three friends start off really good. There's one other thing about the book of Job I want you to bear in mind. And this isn't just from chapter 2. It's kind of about the whole book. In the suffering of Job, we get a picture of the all-sufficient grace of God that truly sustains him. Job, a servant of God, suffered and brought glory to God. At the end of the book, spoiler alert 3, God is going to instruct Job to offer a sacrifice for his friends who misrepresent God. Job, in real sense, is an Old Testament illustration that points us to the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Jesus, unlike Job, would willingly and knowingly suffer. Jesus, unlike Job, would willingly and knowingly die to bring forgiveness for your sins and mine. Many years ago, a man writing a commentary on Job wrote this. The book of Job is a first draft of the gospel story, for it shows a man who bore his cross before Christ. May We, like Job, cling for dear life to God, whom we know is there, even when nothing else makes sense. Father, thank you for the example of Job. Thank you for the things that we can learn. Thank you for your grace that is shown even in the suffering of Job. Thank you for your protection from the adversary in Job's life and in each of our lives. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves and you know what we can take. Lord, may we cling to you day in and day out, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.